The Fanny Mechanic Show with Dr. Tash, where we dive in, go deep and open up about women's health. Hello and welcome everyone to this week's episode of The Fanny Mechanic Show. I am your host, Dr. Natasha Andriatis, aka Dr. Tash. This week, we dive into the topic of female genital mutilation. We go deep with gynecologist Professor Nezrin Varol. Professor Varol opens up about her PhD in FGM, female genital mutilation, what she has learnt and her experiences in Ethiopia. Before I introduce Professor Varol, I wanted to pay my respects to Dr. Catherine Hamlin, to whom this episode is dedicated. Have you read her book, The Hospital by the River? I read it way back in 2001 when it was first printed and when I was an intern my first year out of medical school at Concord Hospital. Taken from Pan Macmillan, Australia, I quote, It's the story of the remarkable Australian gynaecologist Dr. Catherine Hamlin and her medical work that has transformed the lives of 45,000 Ethiopian women. Catherine travelled to Ethiopia with her husband, Reg Hamlin, in 1959 on a short contract. Catherine is at the head of a world-recognised medical program that specialises in the treatment of labour-induced fistulas. Left untreated fistulas, rare in Western countries, result in severe incontinence which forces women into a life of degradation and incapacity. Catherine and her team have established six fistula hospitals, a village to accommodate patients and a midwifery school, and pioneered techniques that are used the world over. They have won the respect of the Ethiopian government, the Nobel Committee, and the hearts of donors around the world like Oprah Winfrey, whose emotional interview with Catherine introduced millions to the life-threatening reality of giving birth in the third world. Set against the harsh beauty of the Ethiopian landscape, this is a compelling account of how the determination and compassion of one woman have inspired others to create genuinely long-lasting change, not just in the lives of individual women, but across a nation. Catherine Hamlin passed away just recently on the 18th of March 2020, aged 96, in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. She was twice nominated for the Nobel Prize, Nobel Peace Prize that is, in 1999 and in 2014. She was an inspiration both to myself and Professor Nezrin Varal, who I'll be chatting to in this episode. I spoke with Nezrin back in 2019. Who was to know that in 2020, we'd be in the middle of a global pandemic at the time at which Catherine passed away? On to Nezrin. Nezrin Varol is a gynecological surgeon and associate professor at Sydney University Medical School. Nezrin's research in FGM relates to improving the healthcare of women and girls with FGM in Australia. Her research also focuses on the role of men in FGM. I'll be putting a link to her article titled The Role of Men in Abandonment of Female Genital Mutilation, a Systematic Review, in the show notes. Nezrin has been involved in establishing the Africa Coordinating Centre for Abandonment of Female Genital Mutilation in Nairobi, Kenya. She has coordinated a consortium of United Nations bodies, universities and non-government organisations to collaborate in research and prevention programs towards a vision of abandonment of FGM. Nezrin was my teacher when I was training at RPA Hospital, and one thing I'll always remember that she taught me was when it comes to operating, do not take shortcuts. I hope you enjoy our chat. Nezrin is a very advanced laparoscopic surgeon, gynecologist, that was actually one of my bosses many years ago at RPA, and she's an excellent gynecological surgeon. 
So I'm going to ask her some questions around that at some point. Nezrin, yes. thanks for joining me. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you for the kind introduction. No, it's awesome having you here. I've been, um, yeah, you completed a PhD in female genital mutilation. Mm. Now, can you explain to our listeners who've maybe never heard of this before what exactly it is? Mm. So there are different terms for that. We call it either female genital mutilation or female genital cutting or some people also call it circumcision, and it depends on the context. So when we're working with communities, we usually use the word circumcision in their own language because that's how they relate to it. When we're talking at a policy level, we usually call it mutilation or mutilation slash cutting. Um, so the word cutting is probably a softer approach to this. It doesn't have the same kind of negative connotation. So basically it means that the that some or all of the anatomy of the external female genitalia are cut. It happens to girls, usually from the age of birth until the age of 15. In, generally, in general, it happens when they are uh, be, before menarche, before the onset of their first period. Uh, it has absolutely no medical benefit. It mm. only has a whole long list, a whole number of uh, acute and chronic complications and long-term complications for these young girls. It's performed in many countries, mainly in uh, sub-Saharan, in the countries of sub-Saharan Africa and also in some Asian countries and very few Middle Eastern countries. So According to a United Nations report, about 200 million girls and women have had this done to them, and about 3 million girls are at risk every year. 200 million? Mm. And how many risk per year? About 3 million are at risk per year of being cut. Wow. Mm. So on the whole, I think that probably the positive thing is that it is on the decrease in general, it is on the decrease because there's more awareness, social media, and as women and men become more educated or countries and communities become the socio-economic uh, group becomes better, then they do, then they are able to abandon this. But whilst it's on the decrease because the number of people are increasing, the number of women overall, the number that are cut is is actually more. Mm. So why can you take us back historically? Mm. Uh, how did this start, and and why has it been mm. such a trend for a very long time mm. in these countries? Yeah, it's a very complex issue. This one, isn't it? Um, so it dates back to more than 2,000 years. So it's, it's been practiced since then in these countries. We don't exactly know how it evolved, but it is a very deeply entrenched cultural practice. There are many reasons for it, and the reasons often differ uh, amongst different communities. But the number one reason is social pressure, or social obligation, social conformity, that there is this pressure on the mothers and the fathers to cut their girls. 
so they are all the same like the other girls mm. because it relates back to marriageability. Men believe that uh, a woman will be a better wife if she has been cut. So also it's thought that um, women who are not cut are more will, will be promiscuous and also the ones who have the more severe type the type three, so there are four types. Can you the, talk to us about those types? Can yeah. you break those down for us? Yeah, so the so the first type is where part or all of the clitoris is removed. Type type two is part or all of the clitoris and the inner labia, so the labia minora it's called. Okay. And type three is the most severe and that has the most severe complications. So where part or all of the female genitalia are removed and then the vagina sutured closed, mm. leaving just a tiny little opening just for the flow of urine and the flow of menstrual blood. So as you can imagine that these women then have the most difficulties with sexual intercourse, so it's very painful or they're unable to have sexual intercourse, urination is a problem, they get recurrent infections and very so serious problems when they then come to having their babies. Mm. because it precludes the vaginal delivery. Did you ever come across any of these women? I, I remember when I was doing my training at Canterbury Hospital, there mm. were a couple of women that I had to attend mm. to um, their deliveries because of of their mm. FGM. And there were a few women who'd had the type 3. Mm. And I, the whole time, kept thinking, how did these women even get pregnant? Mm. Yes. It was just a very painful process for them, you think? Probably. Yeah, pen yeah. penetration would have just been extremely difficult or they... It must have been. Yeah. yeah. Or sometimes what happens is that um, they have their baby and then after the baby, because they need to have a cut to deliver the baby, but then they want to, you know, then the vagina gets switched back mm. up again in, mm. their, in their countries of origin. Um, to what extent? So uh, to the extent, as you said, to allow a bit of vaginal blood to come out... Mm. Mm. Um, and a bit of urine. So the opening can be very, very small. Wow. Yeah. So can I ask, though, this is a bit of a side question, um, is anal intercourse then more common in these countries? If these women are being sutured up in such a way, they can't really maybe have vaginal intercourse really easily. Has anyone looked at anal intercourse in these countries? Tash, I don't know about that. Yeah. There's no research on that, so I can't mm. comment on That would be a really that. interesting research project. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. So I guess the com coming back to the question of why this is being done, so mm. it comes back to marriageability that it's, a girl is considered to be a better woman if she has been cut and men then want to only marry women who have been cut. And particularly those then who have that type 3, mm. um, it also ensures virginity. Right. Virginity is highly priced in obviously some of these communities. So if, if vaginal penetration is not possible, then it ensures virginity. So how do um, how is it that one girl may have the type one and another type three? Mm. Does it vary on the Just, location, the family? Mm. Depends on the community. So right. every community and 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 countries have different types. For example, Somalia and Sudan have the more severe type, the type three. Okay. Indonesia are only type 1. So often in, in Indonesia you might not even see any effect. So they might have just had a little pinprick or a tiny little scratch. But nevertheless, it is type 1 FGM. Mm. Does that still happen? 
Apparently, 75% of women in, Indo- in Indonesia have undergone FGM type 1 only. Wow. So what, they take a bit of the clitoris off, a lot of it? Uh, no. And what it's, part of the clitoris? So type 4, no, no, nothing is removed. Type, ah. type 4 is, so type 4 in Indonesia basically means um, the pricking or scratching or scraping. Um, just a drop of blood is released. So that's the type 4 in Indonesia. It's very... Right. Um, so if I said type 1, so that was a mistake. It's type 4 in Indonesia. Right. Mm. Okay. Okay. So take us through the types again. I'm just I'm yeah. a bit confused. So type 1 is removal of part or all of the clitoris. Uh-huh. Type 2 is part part of all of the clitoris plus the inner, the labia minora. Yeah, which for our listeners is the little pink frilly bits. And yep. type three is uh, removal of part of all of those um, areas we talked about, and then the vagina gets sutured closed. That's type four. That's type three. Oh, oh that's type that's three. Type okay. Three, also okay. called infibulation. Yes. Then there's type four. Type four is basically um, pricking or scratching mm, or scraping or instilling some kind of harmful material into the vagina. Okay. Mm. Okay, and can I ask? Um, so, how long did it take you to do the, the the PhD? So, I did it part time. Normally, PhD is about three and a half to four years. I did it part time, so my PhD was seven years. Wow, bless! That was a long, it's yeah, a long haul. But I loved. I was very passionate about this, this topic. So, yeah, what made you do an, a PhD in this? In this one, um, I visited a hospital in Ethiopia many years ago. What made you go there? What made me go there? Um, I just wanted to experience, uh, you know, how other people live. And I hadn't traveled to to the countries of Africa before. So I just wanted to visit there. Is the coffee good? Oh, the coffee is the best. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. They make the best coffee. I hear that, and yeah. you have to have three cups of coffee. Yeah, wow. Well, the most important wow. for your soul. Is that right? Yeah. Wow. Very Sounds like my kind of place. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Did you by any chance visit um, the Australian doctor? Was it her hospital? Yes, I did. Um, yeah. Uh, Catherine Hamlin. Yes. I visited yep. her hospital mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So one day I was at this other hospital and a woman came in. A young woman, she... Um, had she had FGM done when she was a child, and then she got pregnant when she was, you know, a teenager. Um, had obstructed labor. The baby died, and then she she got a fistula. So an obstetric fistula means um, so when a baby dies, just for our listeners, the pressure from the head causes destruction of tissues because the baby can't come out and then there's a hole between the vagina and the bladder or the vagina and the bowel so these women then constantly leak urine or they constantly leak poo um so she had that problem for a very very long time she didn't know where to go to or didn't have the confidence or maybe the finances to go anywhere she finally then came to this hospital where they were doing fistula surgery and i just happened to be there uh just to see you know just to visit visiting a hospital and um uh 
Andrew Browning was there. Andrew Browning worked at that hospital. So I was examining this woman just to... Sorry, who's that? Dr. Andrew Browning is one of the... He's an Australian obstetrician-gynecologist who has been working in Ethiopia for a very long time. He wasn't the nephew of, of or the son of this doctor. Um, uh, she's... She's Catherine Hamlin? Not Catherine no, I wasn't. She's not no. related to Catherine Hamlin. She okay. Worked, he worked with Catherine Hamlin. Yeah. Um, but he has an aunt there who also is involved with that, with the hospital that they've established. But I believe it's not in Ethiopia. Okay. It's in Tanzania now. Yeah. And um, so he does excellent work. Um, and I remember examining this woman. And after I examined her, so she, you know, she didn't have shoes on. She had this dress on, which, you know, she was obviously uh, very poor. And then as she got up from the examination table, um, I just saw this darkness and this really in her eyes. And I thought, and I could see just the misery that she would have, that she had experienced all her life. And, and I thought, oh, maybe I can do something small for this woman when I get back to Australia. And that's when I became interested in maybe doing some research on FGM, understanding that, and maybe doing something in my own way to increase this knowledge maybe in the Western world mm. and help maybe our own women who, who are here in Australia who have experienced that in, in the original countries to get better health care here at least. So that's how it came about. Wow. Mm-hmm. And, and having finished your PhD, mm-hmm. um, how have you used this PhD mm. to do that. Okay. Uh, first, first of all, it took me a, it took it took me about a year to get over the PhD because so much work. <laughs> yeah, a, a massive holiday required. <laughs> yeah, it was a long. Well done. Oh, thank you very much. It was a, a lot of work. Um, so I have been working with the Department of Health with our government to uh, put together and edit some documents on. FGM in Australia, in these women, uh, you know, how we can gather more data, how we can understand this better, and what the next steps would be to help them receive optimal health care. Um, I've been helping other students with some of their projects. Um, so you're supervising research. other PhD students, you mean? Uh, no, I haven't, no, I'm not doing that, but just, you know, as a... They ask for advice or, okay. we, you know, we, we talk about it and, yeah, um, yeah things like that. And um, where did you travel to as part of your PhD? Mm. I went to Kenya and Ethiopia. Um, so in Kenya, I visited the, um, the Maasai community. Mm. So they're a small community in Kenya who still practice it the most. They're probably a bit more marginalized, and that's probably one of the keys of what makes maybe harmful practices continue in countries. Um, So... What do you mean by marginalized? um, So they're not part of the main... So they're like a minority group? They're a minority group. Yeah, Mm. that's the word. They're a minority group. And... Mm. Mm. So I spent a, a week with them. We had a program that I just uh, oh, I just happened to be there when they it was organized by by a non government organization where the community leaders came to and we talked about 
all the good things about their cultures, all the positive things, and then we also talked about all the negative things and why those harmful practices happen, how they originated, who they benefit and who they harm, and whether we should continue them. Mm. So you don't you don't talk about FGM in particular. We just leave it to them to discuss the positive and the negative things about their cultures. You know, what makes your community better? What holds you back? Mm. And then you know, FGM comes up and you go, mm, oh, interesting. Okay. You, know, you yeah. talk about FGM and you go like, oh, okay. Um, so who does it benefit? Well, it doesn't really benefit anyone. Why is it being done? Oh, I don't know. It's just... Because it's been done for a long time. We always do it. Mm. Maybe we should think about, do you think maybe we should think about stopping it because it causes infertility, it causes pain. Um, A lot of men want to stop it. A lot of women want to stop it as well. But they find it difficult to speak up and have a voice because there's such social pressure. Um, So one one of the ways to help them abandon this is to allow them to have a, a forum where they can come together and discuss this. And find a way where they can, you know, have a communal pledge to then stop it. Um, so this. Wow. So it sounds like it's that's a definite motion and yeah, positive direction. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Mm. Yeah. So you know, education in schools is important, and I reckon if when girls get, you know, are allowed to have. A good education and earn their own money this will stop <laughs> because i reckon that's the key yeah it is isn't it isn't that um who had the wasn't there their the, the goals the millennial goals mm-hmm. and one of them was education wasn't it of course yeah always yes, yeah that's and right. you worked for you went to geneva didn't you at some point to do work with the who yes oh look i just did a i just did a volunteer intern wow what was intern. that like yeah it was very interesting cause that I, was a few years ago it was yeah. a long time ago yeah, yeah. That's that's right. It was great just to see how the World Health Organization works and um, just to be involved in some of their projects, um, policy making, and just um, yeah, amazing. And Geneva was beautiful, of course. Yeah, this is an it. Yeah, and you yeah. sp- you speak. I'm sure. What do you speak? You speak their language, don't you? And uh, no, no, I don't. <laughs> no. I speak so many languages. <laughs> no. Can Not I ask really. you? Um, what were some interesting findings of your PhD? So mm-hmm. it, what, what, what do you want to share with the world as mm. a result of your seven years? Mm. So my PhD really looked at the, how we could improve the health care for these women. And I mainly looked at Australia because, you know, that's my country. Maybe the points that I learned, number one was that FGM is a barbaric procedure, but the people aren't. Oh, okay. That's really important to remember that this is a terrible procedure, a terrible thing to do to, to, to children. But the people who do it, do it because they believe that this will give their daughters the best opportunity to have a good marriage. And, you know, when you live in a poor community, you need, you would like to get your daughter to get, to be married because it's important for that girl. Yeah, it's opportunity, it's security, it's 
Yes, and there's a lot of research from Europe that shows that when these communities migrate to countries like Europe or in Australia, New Zealand, the US, they very quickly abandon this because normal social pressure, Mm. or you know, it's obviously illegal. They abandon the FGM. They just don't want it, and they say, mothers say, look, I don't have to do it anymore. I never want. I don't don't want to do it, and the father didn't want to do it either. But they now feel that they're free now to not to do it, and they can't anyway because it's illegal. Mm. Um, but they quickly abandon it um, because, you know, the girls now can go to school, they can be edu- educated, they can make their own decisions. Mm. Mm. So that's 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 the number one thing. The, the, the number two thing, you know, as doctors and nurses, when we see this woman with FGM, uh, it's very important not to judge them because we just have to remember that they were children when this was done to them. There was no consent. It's not like they wanted to have this done. They had no say in it. They were like two years or three years old or ten years old. They don't know any different. Yeah. Mm. So they had this done to them. They didn't know any better. And then when we counsel them, when we have the opportunity to meet with this woman, you know, during the counseling session, explain to them why this is being done so Mm. that they understand. Often they don't even understand why this is being done and, Mm. you know, why this must not happen to their daughter. Mm. Mm. And also do the counseling with the partner and maybe the 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 grandparents because often the decision making is with a husband and maybe with the with the grandfather or the grandmother very important to talk about the benefits of not doing this that it is illegal obviously um, and why it was done in the beginning and to question that mm. yeah what else did I learn so when we were looking through all the notes of the woman in that hospital where we looked at um, the outcome the health outcomes of these women with FGM we found that that was just the tip of the iceberg, that this problem was just one part of what refugee women endure. So there was also, there were also problems with, and you know, look, a lot of research shows that as well, they have other problems, and often it's way more important to them than the, than the FGM. Um, problems with their language, inability to access healthcare, uh, These are women who've migrated to other countries, like Australia, you mean? Yeah, oh, yes, yeah. Australia. Oh, yeah. Yes. Mm. yeah. But look, looking through their notes, uh, you know, there's you know, domestic violence, for example, mm. because social roles change when they come to a country like Australia where human rights are different, gender roles are different, and a lot of problems come out. They talk about, you know, discrimination problems uh, for themselves or for their children. They have economic problems. So they say these problems are often way bigger than than the FGM. Than the FGM. Yeah. But yeah. doctors and you know, when we come to Australia, for example, these women say, well, you know, we often get uh, questions about FGM so much when we have all these other problems as mm. well. So maybe the other point is when we want to help these women with their health problems, you know, it's a holistic approach. Yeah, see so, so the bigger picture. Yes, help them with their language, integration, assimilation, uh, all, all of that. Mm. 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 And where do these women live in, in Australia? So I know in Sydney it's, it's kind of, where is it in Sydney geographically these women are mainly located? Oh, I'm not really sure. Or can you really generalise? Yeah, no, I can't really generalise. Yeah, and it's probably not fair to generalise. Yeah, even talk yeah. About. There are probably just you, know, you can't, you just can't really tell mm. either. Um, 
And did anything you learn um, or see surprise you? Yeah. Um, so the other thing that I learned, and maybe that was also very important, is that and it, that that goes for domestic violence in Australia, which is a big problem we have here as well, and in really every country in the world, um, is that men are a very important part of the education. So I talked about education of women and helping them to earn their own money and be economically independent. The same goes for the men as well. So we need to educate them as well, especially this new younger generation because they're more open to change. Mm. They're very receptive, I find, the younger generation. Yes, that's right. Yeah, and I I think it's up to the women to have discussions amongst themselves, but up to the women to educate the men. That's my strong feeling. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Absolutely. And people will go, oh, um, but will you find a woman doing that for men's health? And, in fact, yeah, I I don't know. I think sometimes it can be double standards, and I think it's Mm -hmm. only fair that um, women, you know, realise that, we have to have the discussion between girlfriends before we can actually discuss it with our partners. And what happens is, unfortunately, I don't think the girlfriend thing happens often enough mm. where we discuss it between women. Indeed. And men, men, men are find it very receptive. Yes, exactly. And we right. just assume that they're not, but they very much can be. That's right. I agree. I agree, Tash. And I think men sometimes can also feel very left out. Yes, yep. You know, because we talk about well, women's health. Yeah. But there's also men's health, and they have their That's own right. physical and mental yep. problems as well. And they want to do the right thing. Mm. They want to be involved. Mm. They want to know how to interact better, how to have, be better exactly. in a relationship, and how to deal with their own problems. Yeah. So they've, they've had programs, for example, in the countries of Africa around this, where um, when husbands brought their wives to the hospital for them for baby checkup they then also had like um uh, education sessions for the husbands while the wives are being looked after by the obstetrician they then bring the men together and just talk about their problems so they're way more likely than to come up Mm. to 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 turn up to the hospital and also have a beneficial outcome from that Mm. Um, yes. it, yeah, it's so, encouraging to see, I see. Yes, I like that. Absolutely. So education of men is really, really important. And I think they do feel left out. And we just looking at one part of the equation and they are part of it. That's great. It's so true. Yeah. So I've written a paper on the role of men in FGM. Oh, yeah. Tell us more about that. I want to ask you about that. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's basically a review of all the literature on the role of men and pretty much what you just said. It sums that you've really summed it up and what, what I just talked about. Um, is giving them a voice as well. For example, with, with FGM, men uh, generally only know the effect of FGM on their wedding night. Oh, no way. Yes, so they have this notion that women should have this done because they will be the better wife. But on the wedding night, you know, when they first meet and uh, can be together, um, and there's been a study that then showed uh, then, so that's the first time that men then really see the effect of FGM. And they, there was a study that showed that men feel responsible for their wife's pain through mm. intercourse. Obviously, yes. you know, they might not be able to have, to, to, to have intercourse and there's pain. Men don't want to cause pain to their wife and they feel responsible. They just want, they just want their partners to feel pleasure. Yes. And any way they, 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 are, they, they can be taught by their woman to feel pleasure. They will be, I think, responsive to. Indeed. And it's, I suppose it's also how women tell the man, this is what I like, this is how best to come around <laughs> to that. Yeah, I, um, 
Yeah, yes, I, I can course. see that. Yeah, yes. yeah. And then this is probably like another step where they can't even have intercourse because you know it's too painful. Mm. And there was one study that then also showed men also then have physical and psychological problems from that. So mm. that's when they realize, oh, this is actually really bad. Wow. I just didn't know it until yeah. I realized what it is about today. Yeah. But it's kind of too late, and it's difficult then to have a voice. Um, we'll have to, um, for our listeners, we'll have to, in the um, the podcast notes, we'll have to attach your papers for reference so that people can read them. Would oh, you be happy with that? Yeah, well, thank you very much. That and would even be lovely. even the paper that you mentioned about women, um, the men being alerted to women's pain, would be really yes. really good to attach. Of course. Yep. Yeah. Wow. So, okay. So men realize this often on the night of the wedding. Mm. Wow. Mm. Uh, tell us more. Yeah. What is it? So, what what happens then? Why? What do they do? So they so yeah. they have they have they're trying to have sex. There's pain, whatever. What then happens realistically in, in these communities in these countries? I if the woman has had type three. Um, then she needs to have the vagina opened again. Mm-hmm. Type three is again for our audience. Is is when it, when the vagina is sutured closed and there's a tiny little opening. Okay. So again, it's another painful procedure. So the vagina needs to be opened a little bit to allow for vaginal intercourse. Um, but I think everything kind of becomes very difficult. You know, out of scarring and there's scarring and there's probably always pain and. You know, the relationship suffers. The woman doesn't often enjoy enjoy mm. sex. The man has problems. So probably difficult for them to know where to even go for help. But having said that, there are also a lot of studies that show women who have the lesser types of FGM don't have sexual problems. And it depends on how much has been cut out and how much scarring there is. Mm. Um, so, I mean, overall, it sounds like it's a lose-lose situation. The yes, FGM. Exactly. Yeah. There's absolutely no no indication for this. Um, and one day it will stop. Just like there's an uh, it, it, there's an analogy with foot binding that. Oh yes, was, in Japan. In was it Japan or China? In, in China. In yeah. Or China. Yeah. Okay. In, and it it changed at the end of this at the end at the turn of the century um, when. A woman, what where uh, woman needed to work, and so the government then abandoned it. Was that or censored why, it? Why did they need to work? Was a big was I know I know in, in Western Europe, you know, mm. women had to work because men went off to war, mm. so that changed women's movement very much in Europe. But why did women need to work in China? What happened? So I think the communist regime came. It was a right. turn of the century. And that kind of that change. I don't know the history very yeah, well, okay. but that's that was a just complete change in in the government structure. And why did they bind their feet? So foot binding means in young girls, um, the feet were crushed, so the bones were crushed, and then often shreds uh, wow. of uh, maybe glass and things were put around the foot, and then the feet were bound, got infected, so that the Bones could not grow, so they had these deformed little feet. Again, but the, why did they do yes, that? Yes, so the reason is very similar to FGM. It, it just comes back to control of women. Wow, women who had little feet, deformed feet, like they couldn't walk very far. They kind of couldn't really go out of the house very much. Again, it's 
control of women and control of women's sexuality. Um, wow. And again, one of the other. I'm reasons, saying a lot of wows in this yeah. in this podcast because I'm being wowed by Nizrin. Oh, it's an, in it's this an, information. It's, yeah, it's a very interesting. They don't do that anymore, do they? No, that stopped. Oh, yes, yeah. that stopped, and that's excellent. So, the, one of the reasons it stopped that the the government made it illegal, and there were quite serious um, there was serious punishment for that. And um, the when men the, they brought a lot of high profile and well known men on board to lobby for this to be stopped. When and then when men said and men, when men reassured mothers that we will marry your daughter who have not had their feet bound, then women stopped it. When they were reassured that the daughters could get married, that stopped. And also, you know, the, the main thing was illegal. So it's a multi-pronged approach. Just for just like anything else in this world, isn't it? Um, it needs to come from the government. So there needs to be message from the government at then community level and then you know, schools and everywhere in between, non-government organizations. Very much sounds like men need to be on board for things to change. Yeah, absolutely. Very, very important. Only half the world's population. <laughs> Affecting half the world's population. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, sorry. Yeah, one of the studies mm. by the United Nations in the countries of Africa that they interviewed men and women and a lot of men in, in some countries, most of the men said they also want this to stop. Mm, it's not like this is propagated by men and they want this to continue. Mm. They also want it to stop, but they find it difficult to do that. So maybe our role coming from Australian high-income countries is to um, help them to find the forum to talk about this and to facilitate that kind of conversation and to maybe fund projects in communities for things that they need. For example, they might need a school upgrade for things or salaries for the teachers so that then the girls can go to school or they can have a curriculum on this and things like that. Mm. It's, it's, it's little things that can make a difference. Where they can educate girls about you know, the power mm. of their bodies, sexuality, yes. without having to feel guilt about feeling pleasure because... From what I understand, a lot of FGM is is based on what women woman feels pleasure that hence the woman will more likely I don't know yes. sleep with another man. What what's the situation? Yes, there? so the one of the reasons is that if women have not been cut, they are thought to be more promiscuous, and then when they're married, they're considered they're thought to be mm. promiscuous. So there's a complete misunderstanding. Of sexuality, of sexual organs, of reproductive biology, and it's very disrespectful for girls and women, you know, and their families and to men as well to say that about women. That's mm. completely disrespectful. Mm. So, what um, what tips or words of advice would you have for anyone out there, Nizrin, who's wanting mm. to complete a, a ah, PhD? PhD. Oh yes, now having. So you're a doctor, doctor. <laughs> Actually, you're. Dr. Dr. Professor, Professor Nizri Varel. <laughs> um, advice um, would be uh, find a topic that at the very least you really love, if not you're actually passionate about because mm -hmm. it's a long haul. It's a really, really big project and it's it's long. It's not difficult. It's just, it just 
the amount of work is enormous. It's just long. Um, so I think feeling passionate about a topic will help you keep going because you enjoy doing it. You enjoy reading it and connecting with other researchers and people. And it kept me you know, traveling and you learn so much about that topic. That's the first thing. That's probably the most important thing. Yeah, it must be really nice being kind of an expert in on something. Yes, I think when you finish your PhD, you, 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 you know, you've done it for so long. Um, sometimes the problem becomes that's all you talk about. And then <laughs> you bought people to death and you go like, okay, I better stop now. <laughs> I go like, okay, I'm such an academic and I better stop. Um, uh, you sit, is he, you're still teaching at Sydney Uni? Yes. Yeah? Yes, I love teaching. Yes, Good. indeed. Yeah. You teach, you learn from others yeah, while you teach, isn't it? True. always like that. Yeah. yeah for, for sure. Then the second thing is um, just keep going. Um, just take it day by day. Make sure you find other PhD students that you connect with because it's a solitary thing. You're on your own. You're doing this thing. Um, make sure you have others that you can debrief and you can talk about things and it helps you to keep going. And just like with our work and whatever we do in life, factor things into your day that you enjoy doing, you know. I remember for you, um, exercise is important. Yeah, is I it? love yeah, exercise. So tell us about that because you're doing CrossFit quite a lot. Are yes. you still doing CrossFit? Uh, no, I kind of, um, yes, I used to, I do a little bit of CrossFit, but yes, I used to do, go to the gym a lot. Um, I, I've done lots of sports in my life, cycling and yeah, and you're a cyclist, that's right. Yeah, I enjoyed doing that. And now I've started judo. Oh, no way. I, I, I used to do it as a child. Oh, I love was, it. I was a kid when I did it and then now. It's a martial arts. Yes, yeah. a martial arts. Yeah. It's a Japanese sport. Wow. So, and I've just Did you do that when you were in Japan? No, I didn't. <laughs> but obviously, it's a Japanese sport. It's like big in Japan. It's going to be great at the Olympics next year. Is that right? Yeah, it's going to be awesome. Are you going to be watch. there? Are you going to go? Not sure. Not sure. Oh, I'm surprised you're not volunteering at the Olympics, Nazrin. <laughs> <laughs> I looked into applying for that, actually. Yeah, are you? Yeah, yeah there was an could. online, but oh, that's not going to happen. But yeah, why not? Yeah, great. Yeah, but I think they'd bring a great. Um, it's so exciting. Olympics are Japanese. Everything would just, of course, it just work. You know, it was so organised. Yeah, but the great thing, time zone wise, it'll we'll be able to watch it quite easily, won't yes, we? Yes, there's only one hour difference. Yeah, there you go. Nothing. Yep. Uh, <laughs> what other tips for PhD students? Oh uh, yeah, to so, be. Mm, I think the important thing is. Uh, make sure that you don't just focus on the PhD for those four years or so. Make sure you have, if you have a relationship, make sure you put time into that so that doesn't suffer. Um, make sure that your mental and physical health stays good and that that usually includes, you know, have you know, having a good nutrition and in exercising or doing other things that you really enjoy doing. Mm. Whether that's catching up with friends on a regular basis or going for walks or what, whatever, whatever mm. you enjoy doing, make sure that you keep that up. Mm. Mm. And if anything, getting enough rest and sleep and yes. we underestimate the power of sleep and how important it is in being able to function and being at our optimal. Isn't that And so performing, true? whether it's academically or physically. True. Yeah, so... Rest, I would say. My dad has always said all my life, make sure you get seven to eight hours sleep per night. So true. And it's funny because he said that from when I was small. Mm. And um, it's only recently in the last few years that I've been doing a lot of reading around Mm. sleep 
And every every sleep book I come across has that. And I'm like, my dad reading knew what he was talking about, isn't he? You know, and he's never been academic. I've never seen him read a book in my life. He's right. only read, you know, mm-hmm. um, Greek newspapers. But I think that un- we underestimate the power of rest. So true. And to be able to say, I'm not doing anything today. I'm just going mm-hmm. to rest. And I, I, I could imagine for you it's quite difficult because you do so much, you're doing so much. And to be able to say, I'm doing nothing today is actually difficult to do. Can be, but I've become really much better at it. And I think what your dad says is such an important pearl of wisdom, isn't Isn't it interesting mm. how something that our parents say mm. always stay with us? Mm. Um, that yeah. and canned food. Hmm? So my dad was always against canned food. Oh, yes, processed food. Processed foods and, yeah. and you know, and, and now you're reading all these articles and, and seeing things in the news and the, and the papers about yeah. avoiding canned foods because they have PBAs, which are bad for your health because they're, mm. you know, because they're no estrogens. Mm. And I always think that kind of old wisdom yeah. holds true. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But you, you're right, you know, like being able to just stop and be still and just to be with yourself and just to enjoy the moment and not being and not to do anything is very very important mm. it it is difficult but it's 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 very very important it's very mm. good for the soul and your mm. body isn't it mm. um yeah especially after all those years of medicine where it's go 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 mm. you know and sleep as, as you said sleep is really really important that that brings it probably to the to another topic of depression so when people have depression and insomnia is mm. probably the, is one of the main uh, yeah, fixing people's sleep. Yeah, it's huge. Mm, yeah. So, Nezren, thank you so much. That was I'm just intrigued oh. by things that you've discussed, and um, wow, congratulations oh, thank on you your for, PhD. Oh, thank you for your kind words. Thank yeah. you. It was a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this episode, ladies, and that it's given you an insight into what some of our fellow sisters around the world have endured and still endure. Let's stop FGM. Let's stop female genital mutilation. Please share this episode with others. Please subscribe to the Fanny Mechanic channel. And if you haven't already, hop over and give the show a fantabulous rating. Shoot me a message on Instagram, Dr. Tash Fanny Mechanic, and join the Fanny Mechanic podcast group on Facebook. Let me know of any topics you'd like to hear, cool people like an interview, or books to share. Until next time, stay fantastic.